back here at OBC. Uh, thank you guys so much for welcoming my family and I, uh, my wife Abby, our three kids. Uh, there will be a test at the end of tonight if you can name all three kids. Can anybody name all three kids at this point? No, you, you don't count. You held one. No. Uh, we have Emma is my oldest five. Milo is three, going to be four, and is the size of a fifth grader. Um, and Brody is two months now? Two months. Yes, it has been a wild ride. Guys, how many of you have experienced 2020 in some of the strangest ways? Okay. I, we, we got a new job. We moved to a new place. It's kind of an old place. And we had a child. Abby's living at her in-laws right now while we find a house. Abby's 2020 is on point. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I should clarify. Abby had a child. I did not have the child. Okay. Right. Um, well, I, I am uh, Sean Stanley. Uh, I'm so glad to be here. Um, if you don't know me, I've been, over the past 10 years, uh, a youth pastor in Petersburg, Michigan at a sister Open Bible Church, New Life Church. Um, we, I am the uh, student ministries director for Open Bible East, and so some of our youth might recognize me from Camp or Elevate. There are a few things you have to know about me, okay? You gotta, you gotta take a joke when you talk with me, okay? But you guys are prepped. You guys have had Jake Grimes here with you, so you guys know. Right, okay, they're already in. The other thing you have to know about me is I am a big fan of The Office. Do I have any other Office fans in here? Okay, Woo. All right, I have a clip. Jake, do we have that clip ready for tonight? Okay, uh, we're going to get to a clip, but I want to set up the clip, okay? Now, this is easily in the top three episodes of The Office, but if you are an Office fan, you've got to know this. If you've never watched it, you've got to understand that it's all just sarcastic and hilarious sitcom, okay? Nothing can be taken serious of Michael Scott. Um, he is dating this woman named Jan who used to be his boss but got fired. I'm giving you all the backstory. But we're going to watch a clip from one of the top three episodes, and Jake would argue is the number one episode. This is an episode called Dinner Party, and this sets up fantastically where we are going tonight. So let's watch a clip, a deleted scene actually from the new... Little amuse-bouche, anyone? Food. Okay, trivia. Does anyone know what that means? I believe it means mouth pleaser. Oh. It's French. I studied some French during my semester at sea. Or shall I say a semester at La Mer, which is French for sea. Andy, was that coordinated by the Cornell Study Abroad Office? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The reason I ask is that Andy went to Cornell. <sighs> did you wash your hands, babe? Yes, I did for you, princess, even though I only went number one. <laughs> I didn't really wash my hands. Oh, what have we here? This looks delicious. Not with your hands. They need to be presented royally. Anyone? Mm. There we go. Good stuff. All right, let's get down to some wine drinking. Oh my God, I thought I was gonna pass out. We should probably get back. Mm -mm. I'm just gonna stay here for a while, so I got lost. Are you eating? It was just a little. I didn't have anything, Jan. Really, Pam? This is a dinner party. I'm sorry. Jim is st st staring at the camera. Um, I love The Office. I love this episode because Dinner Party sets up with high ambition. 
the backstory of Dinner Party is Michael has been trying to get all of these couple over to his house, specifically Jim and Pam, who you saw at the end, over to their house to have a dinner party with his dysfunctional girlfriend, Jan, okay? And throughout the whole episode, they go through all these chaotic moments, which includes as they arrive, Jan says, oh, the Asabuco is on right now, but it just needs to braise from three hours. And Pam says, like, three hours from three hours ago or three hours from now? And she's, she's basically like, Pam, relax. We're going to have a good time. Anyways, so the whole dinner party theme is set up where, where Michael wants this to be the best night ever, but these plans fall flat on their face. How many of you like to be bougie, like to be all prim and proper and fancy and have dinner parties? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, I can relate. Mandy, whoa! Okay, everybody's going to get invited to Mandy's house for a fancy dinner party, okay? Um, I'm not a fancy dinner party guy. I'm a, I'm a cookout guy, okay? I'm throwing some hot dogs and hamburgers. I think I have had corn on the grill like once a week for the past three or four weeks. Correct me if I'm wrong, Abby, okay? It's just, it's that time of year. Uh, but, but we're going to look at this idea of having plans thinking that they're going to go according to those plans and then watching those plans completely fall on their face. Anybody have a situation like that where your plans just come? Some of you are murmuring 2020, okay? 2020 has just been the plans. We thought it was going to be this way, and it completely has fallen on our face. I just uh, I saw an article. I don't know if it's true. It was on the Internet, so it has to be. And it said that in Florida there are now um, uh, meth-addicted uh, uh, alligators because people are disposing of drugs in the water and the alligators are consuming. Welcome to July, people. We are now experiencing meth alligators, okay? This is, this is where 2020 is going. But I've had those circumstances where I have set up these high, high uh, uh, um, what standards, this high vision of the way it's going to go, and it just completely falls on its face. Tonight we have a couple texts that lead us through this journey of what do we do in the midst of our plans completely falling apart. So our first text is going to be out of Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 17, and we're going to work our way through verse 28. Um, and then if you also want to flip to Genesis 18, we'll get there, but we'll get there eventually, guys, okay? I'm reading out a new Revised Standard Version, so if it doesn't quite line up with yours, just hold tight. We'll get there. Verse 17, Matthew chapter 26. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples said, as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Now, pause real quick. If we're Jews, we're understanding that this is kind of last minute. And if you talk to my wife, Abby, she says, this is kind of Sean's life, last minute plans. I am just a last minute type of guy. Abby is a, we will set up plans and this is what we're going to stick to, okay? Um, but this, for a Jew, the Passover is like the Super Bowl of feasts, okay? This is the feast that you want to attend. It might be your Thanksgiving where you have the full spread, you know family's coming over, you're anticipating a big crowd, you're anticipating this to be a good time of eating. This is the Super Bowl of feasts for Jews. And now for it to get to the point where it is the day of the Passover, and the disciples are coming to Jesus saying, hey, where are we going to have this Super Bowl of feasts? It's like showing up to the Super Bowl and not having tickets and expecting to get in. It's just, it's not going to happen. 
All right, so initially, the, the, from the start, the disciples are like, okay, thought we were going to have a better plan here to celebrate, but we're going to work with it. Verse 20, uh, when it was evening, he took his place with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. This is an interesting way to open up dinner, okay? <laughs> uh, if you guys are invited over to Mandy's house soon, and she opens with the line of, one of you will betray me tonight, it's time to grab your coat and go, okay? This is an interesting way. Again, this is the Super Bowl of Feasts for Jews. They, they intend this to be something that is going to be holy, sacred, and is going to be a good time of reflection of where God has led their people, but also where God is taking their people. And Jesus starts out with, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, and they became greatly distressed and began to say to him, and one after another, surely not I, Lord. He answered, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. This is for dinner parties. It's a standard rule. If you catch somebody double dipping, they are the one who will betray you, okay? Those people need to be kicked out of your group because they are not welcome at my dinner party. Jesus is setting up something. You guys should be taking notes on this. Anybody who double dips gets kicked out of the party, okay? The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. While we're eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. After giving thanks, he gave to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. God, we prepare our hearts to hear what you have for us. And Lord, we pray that it would not be words that Sean speaks, but we, we, we pray we would see the truth in your word tonight. That you've prepared our hearts to enter in this place. Lord, you have gone before us, and you know that there is something in here for every single one of us. So we pray that that seed would fall in our hearts, that it would fall in good soil, and that it would bear fruit in our lives. We give you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, this is quite the dinner party. It's, it's set full of drama from the start. It reminds me a lot of the dinner party of The Office, but it's set full of drama. From the start, we understand that they're last minute to plans. It's kind of like booking a hotel at the Super Bowl. It, they, they start out with, somebody's going to betray me. It almost is like the movie Clue. We're setting it up for a murder mystery here. What's it going to be? Then all the attendees start arguing amongst themselves. Surely it can't be me. Somebody's double dipping like we've already covered. That turns out he was the one who murdered uh, Colonel Mustard in the study with the wrench. It was Judas. Um, and then they all are asked to take part in this thing, which this is real, first century and second century Romans looked at early followers of the way, early Christians, as ones that took, took part in cannibalism. Because they, were, they heard that they were eating of their leader and drinking his blood, all right? So this turns out to be a crazy dinner party from the start. We know that the disciples have walked in, and we know that, that this is the Eucharist, this is the good gift. God is giving of himself to his people. But we understand from the start that the disciples' expectations are completely being blown out of the water. It is 2019. 
They are making their New Year's resolution for 2020, and lo and behold, God knows what he has store for 2020 for the disciples. Can I get an amen? Okay. They have shown up to the Last Supper, this Passover feast in their mind, and Jesus starts to show them a new way. Jesus has another plan. They, they wanted to experience normalcy. They wanted to experience comfort. How many of you have a routine? Anybody have a routine? My routine, when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to be honest, I roll over and I grab my phone, okay? You got to check the, the gram, that's Instagram. You got to check Twitter just to see if anybody tweeted at you. Turns out nobody tweets at me. Um, you got to check Facebook to see what the latest fake news is. We, you got to check it all, okay? And then I get up, and sooner or later, I make my child a bottle. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I wake up. I make my child a bottle. We, we get going in the morning. I get a shower, get off to work, and that starts my day. These normal systems help make us feel secure. Abby is somebody who loves systems, and, and, and like that helps her feel secure. And I understand that. And I'm not one. I'm the, the guy that like the desk can be a little bit messy, and that's what makes me secure, Okay. <laughs> But we all have it. It just looks a different way, right? But the disciples were approaching this Passover feast saying that like this, maybe, picture yourself as a disciple. You've been on the road with this new rabbi who people are, are saying is a, a heretic or some people are following. He's healing. He's teaching you new stuff. And you probably get to this Passover feast and you're like, man, maybe this will be a great break. Just a little bit of normalcy. It'll be nice. We can enjoy a nice dinner together and maybe get on with the ministry later. It would be just a nice break from everything. But Jesus is like, don't think so fast, all right? From the moment Jesus says that normal fe- feeling, that, that, comfortable, that comfortability, that reassuring feeling, he's going to address. But that's not what is in store for them. They had a picture of what was going to happen, but God had something else in store. Now picture in your mind's eye, okay? You're sitting at dinner, you, you can kind of see, everybody close their eyes real quick. You can kind of see Peter sitting over there at the table. And Jesus talks about him uh, having to be crucified, giving of his life, giving of himself. And G- Peter's already been rebuked at this moment for saying, not you, Lord. You know, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter's probably maybe a little frustrated that Jesus is coming back to this topic again. You see John sitting there. He's probably a mixture of like... Um, heartbroken, but also anticipating what's going to come. You see Thomas. I identify with Thomas. I'm like, I'm along for the ride, but I'm a little skeptical of what's going to happen, okay? And then you see Judas with his hand in the artichoke dip, double dipping, and he says, one of you will betray me. And Judas is frozen in the moment, and he's probably like, what does Jesus know? How does he know it? And how much does he know, right? So you picture all of this. They, they were anticipating it being comfortable. They were anticipating it being normal. But Jesus, from the start of addressing where we're going to have this Passover, says we're going in a different direction. The Passover meal was meant to remind the Jews that God had once brought them out of oppression, right? We know this, Exodus. That, that once his people were enslaved, but God brought them out into freedom, into liberation, It was a signpost pointing this way, but it was a signpost also pointing in this direction, saying that God would bring us into a second exodus, that we are looking forward to when God would bring us out of the oppression of an empire. 
they are anticipating this meal, reminding them of something heartwarming, that God has not forsaken them, that God has not forgotten them. But Jesus has a new message to send. Yet here is Jesus, the one who the disciples look for direction, not pointing back to tradition, but forward to bondage and death. He says, somebody's going to betray me. I've got to give of my life. I give you my body. I shed my blood for you. Take it and walk in salvation, the forgiveness of sins. And so what, what they thought were going to be heartwarming feelings, Jesus takes and he says, no, this is, this is going to end in bloodshed soon. And they were, they were anticipating it being heartwarming, but that's not what God had in store. And what we see happen directly after this, directly he, after he breaks the bread, he goes to the garden, he's taken into captivity, he, he gives of his life. And what do we see these disciples who were anticipating something going well? What, do we see them like come to arms and say, let's go get them? No, what we see is we see Peter denying he even knows him. We see the disciples scattering and hiding, and we see an overall fear of what's happening to our leader may happen to us. And in Matthew 26, the text shows us something cool. That at the first encounter of consuming his body, his blood, at the first encounter of accepting the good gift, we act just as the disciples because we understand how weak and needy we truly are. The communion, it should not point to this like, well, I've got a pass to get on the ride, okay? What it should point to is that God gave of himself to you. It should point to that you need him in your life more than anything. I like this idea of communion, and communion is something that oftentimes uh, gets passed over. We relegate it to one Sunday or one month or one, uh, every three months. Or, we have all different traditions. But communion, what it does is it centers our heart around the need for goodness in our life, right? Uh, anybody, I, my teacher used to always say, you are what you eat, Right? If you eat enough carrots, you're going to turn orange. I can never identify with that. If you want to identify with it, it was if you eat enough Cheetos, you'll turn orange, okay? <laughs> um, but, but in that, there's truth because it is literally the idea of communion. Eucharist is just good gift. It is you are what you consume. He gives of himself to you so that you may bring it into you and you become what you consume, Right? So that sooner or later, scientists say every seven years, your entire, Jeremy, you know more about science than I do, but your body completely rejuvenates, right? Like your, all your cells are different over a period of seven years. You were not who you were seven years ago. I'm not who I was seven years ago, Mandy, okay? All right? All right. That, that is very good, right? But there's truth in that because we become what we consume. And Jesus, way ahead of his scientific time, said, hey, Consume this and become it. I give of you myself to you for you to become. Maybe this tells us that we need him. Maybe this points us in the direction that he is there for us. Psalm 23. Um, I love the message because, especially when I'm speaking, the message is just so easy to, to understand. You know, It's great to read in comparison, but Psalm 23 says this. God, my shepherd, 
I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you led me, let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, I'm not afraid. When you walk at my side, your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. This is where, what I like. Verse 5. You serve me a six-course dinner right in front of my enemies. You revive my drooping head, my cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. When I look around today, man, 2020, it's got plenty of death valleys, okay? There's plenty of issues happening. You know, when, when we felt that the Lord was bringing us out of uh, Toledo, Michigan area back home, there was this uncertainty, and sometimes there still is an uncertainty. And, and people would ask, how are you doing? And I'd be like, eh, I'm taking it day by day, right? You've had those moments where you're just taking it day by day. You're taking it moment by moment. Uh, and, I, and I remember, like, having this moment recently where I heard somebody ask me, uh, how are you doing? And it I wasn't focused on myself and how I'm doing, but there were so many issues in the world that I was like, man, don't talk about me. How is the world doing right now, okay? And my vision of what I was understanding was drawn from my own circumstance to the circumstance of others. People who maybe have family in nursing homes who have experienced death due to this, this virus. Uh, our black brothers and sisters who are going through this moment where they're trying to see and make a voice their concerns. There are issues in our culture, in our communities, that are just at, are bubbling over right now. And I go back to that Matthew 26, and when we encounter the good gift, it shows us how needy we are. Man, if we look at a world that is so needy, maybe they just need a little bit of the good gift, Okay. Maybe when we recognize our need, he has already fulfilled that desire. Maybe he's already given us that good gift. I'm not somebody who's going to tell you that an earthquake is because God saw a sinner and sent an earthquake to to wipe them out. I'm not somebody who's going to say, hey, this plague is brought on to you by all the sinners over in this community, or God sent this to judge this group. But I am somebody, and, and G said it earlier, I am somebody who looks at text in our scripture and says, God does what with all things, man? He works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And some of the earliest manuscripts of Paul's letter says it also like this. Not that God works in all things, but in all things, God is at work for those who are called according to his purpose. Guess what? Spoiler alert. If you haven't gotten to the end of the book, you're called according to his purpose. Okay? Every single one of us are called for his purpose to see his will. And that means no matter what's happening, he is there for you. Like that song says, he's there for you, before you, behind you, beside you, all around you. He is with you. He is for you. 2020 has shown us that we are in need of that good gift. Jesus is at work in it. Genesis 18, our second text for the night. It says, 
the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, "My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves and after you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds of milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Pause real quick. What we've skipped over leading up to Genesis chapter 18 is an important thing, but it's worth noting because it gives us context. Before this, in 16 and 17, Abraham has entered into a covenant with God. It tells us that Abraham is 99 years old and he enters into covenant with God and it's a little bit of anatomy, guys, but he enters into covenant with God via circumcision, okay? If you don't know what circumcision is, talk to Jake after service, okay? He's the guy. He's the guy. (laughs) Picture this, guys. You are sitting on the porch of your house. You are 99 years old. You have just performed circumcision on yourself, and God shows up on the scene, okay? What in the world is happening in Genesis chapter 18, okay? This is insane. You are 99. You have no anesthetic. Let it put in, for, in, in that into the equation. And you see three people walk up. And the, and the text is, uh, has a level of ambiguity on purpose, right? We don't know if this is God and two angels. We don't know if this is the personification, the, the manifestation of the Trinity. We just know that they have approached, and Abraham knows it's the Lord, right? So Abraham, in the midst of his age, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his struggle, he sees God approaching, and his reaction is with hospitality, in the midst of what he is going through, he is willing to set aside what's going on with him and understand that the presence of the Lord is coming his way and he needs to stop and he needs to welcome it with everything that he has. Right? So we keep going in the story. Verse 9, They said to him, Where is your wife Sarah? And he said, There in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due time, in due season. And your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening to the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. We've already covered that. He just got circumcised. We don't need to revisit that. And all the men said, amen. So Sarah laughed to herself and said, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure and have a son? The Lord said to Abraham, why did, your, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At that set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied saying this. I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh, yes, you did laugh. 
When I read, oh, yes, you did laugh. (laughs) Uh, My son Milo is three, and even though my kids are technically PKs, they are not perfect, okay? And they fight, all right? And uh, sometimes I look at my son, and I hear screaming, and I say, Milo, what happened? And Emma says, "He he hit me, right? And she's always willing to give up her younger brother, okay? Imagine that. And I said, Milo, did you hit your sister? And he says, no. And I said, oh, yes, you did hit your sister. And, and I never really put it in this frame, but I read this verse, and when I became a parent, I understood, oh, yes, you did say that, right? Oh, yes, you did. And I've always read it like that. I've always read Sarah's cynicism as just being rude, as just kind of be like, uh, okay. But put yourself in Sarah's shoes. You're you're 90 plus, pushing 100, okay? You have not had a child up until this point when you've seen plenty of other people have children. God comes to your husband and says, she will bear a child. And in chapters earlier, just to let you know, Abraham's response to it was to fall down and start laughing initially, okay? So this is the second go around. And Sarah has has now been told that she has a dream of having children. She's then been told through a prophetic word that she will have children from the Lord. The Lord has promised her that. Then time has gone on. And imagine if somebody promised you $20, and 20 years later, they still had not given you the $20. Do you think you're taking them at their word? No, okay? You get to 20 years later, that person shows back up at your house and says, hey, I got that $20 for you. It'll be here soon. You're like, ha ha, joke's on you this time, okay? It's not happening. But imagine it's not $20. Imagine you've gone your whole life without children. You've been promised it hasn't come, and then you've tried to see that vision, that promise come to pass. Your husband has laid with the servant girl. He's had a child through that. You're now jealous of that child. And it's gotten to where you think your life is over. And somebody shows back up on the scene promising the same thing again. What do you think your reaction in that situation is going to be? All right, I got it. Yeah, it's going to happen. I believe. Probably not. I, I identify with Sarah's cynicism. But we have to understand that Sarah's cynicism is not birthed out of her, her means to be rude. It's not birthed out of that. It's birthed out of pain. It's birthed out of this response that something has happened to her. And I've always read this, oh, yes, you did laugh in that tone. But if Sarah's, if Sarah's cynicism isn't birthed out of just being rude to be rude, if it's birthed out of pain, then another way of reading this would be, Sarah, are you in pain? Because I heard you. The Lord hears her laughter. And says, are you in pain? I heard you. Sarah says, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. I didn't laugh. I I don't have that pain. And instead of reading it as, oh, yes, you did laugh, read it as, oh, no, I see your pain. I hear your pain. Abraham's story, we read the story of Hagar, the servant girl who had Abraham's first child. And Hagar, the servant who is not a Jew, who is not part of, of his people, is the first one to name God as the God who hears. And we see it here again. We see it that Sarah 
is not somebody who's just trying to be rude and ignore the promise and wipe it away, but she's somebody who has lived her life, seen so much pain that's happened to her, is in pain, and then when God shows back up to the scene again, God doesn't condemn her and rebuke her. He says, I, hear, I heard your pain. I see it. I hear it. Cynicism is easily dismissed as being rude, but that's not what Sarah is. Genesis 21, 20, or 21. It says, verse 1, The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. The Hebrew word dealt doesn't imply whether it was with hostility or with pleasure, but seeing that right after it, it says the Lord did for Sarah what he has promised, we can imply here that instead of saying the Lord dealt with Sarah, another translation, another interpretation of this Hebrew word dealt would also be he cared for Sarah. He saw Sarah. He heard her cry earlier. And then in this moment, he was true to his word. He heard her cry and he cared for her. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son whom Sarah bore. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days and not 99 years old. Thank you, Abraham, for learning from your life. As God had commanded him, Abraham was 100 years old when he had his son Isaac. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears you or who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would ever have said to Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in this old age. Isaiah 61. Again, this story shows us the character, the nature of God. And Isaiah 61 puts it like this. He gives beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Because God is one who hears your pain. If in 2020 everything is going down the drain, if the good good gift brings us back to this understanding that we are people in need, we are weak without him, and if we understand that from the start of this good book, He is painting himself as a God who is not void, who is not absent. He's not an absentee father, but he is in the midst of our pain. He hears our cry, and he is true to his word to care for you. Abraham and Sarah's story does what Isaiah 61 says, that uh, he traded it for something better, and that their story stands as a pillar, as a memorial, as to what he is in the business of doing. If you are going through pain, if you're going through a broken home, if you're going through troubled situations right now, understand that if he did it before, he's going to do it again in your life. Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were righteous and holy and had everything right, no, while we were still sinners, he gave his life for us. This meal, this 
consuming of the good gift, this bread and this wine, this dinner party does not go as the way we expect it to go. But his way is really better than our way, guys. Jake, can we play the blessing? We'll just end with the blessing. Can we do that? Um, Early Pentecostal church fathers and mothers emphatically insisted that the good gift, Eucharist, was not just a memorial. In uh, Azusa Street, 1906-1908, the beginning of the 20th century, they were still believing that this communion was not just to pay homage to something that was, but something that is here and now. One of the, our, our church mothers said this, and this is good. We do not take part in this as to consume dry bone and coagulated blood. We take part in the breaking of bread and drinking of wine to participate in the suffering as well as the benefits. For the body is alive and still being given. The blood is flowing and we are still being covered. We are what we eat. He is still giving to us. We are still being covered. Yes, he sees us as needy, but guess what? He didn't die for those who had it all together. He died for every single one of us who needed him. And the body is not buried and dead. It is not dry bone. The blood is not stiff and is evaporated. It is still flowing, and he is still giving of himself to this day. Why? Why are we invited to this table? This table is, is the Passover meal at the beginning of the Bible. This, this table is in Psalm 23 that we read. He prepares that six-course meal. Amen. I'm a man of courses, okay? He, he draws us to the Passover meal in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. And he, he says, this meal I now give of myself. And then at the very end in Revelations 19, we see the wedding feast of the lamb, right? It is important that we understand that Jesus likes to eat, amen, okay? But it's important to understand that we have all been invited to the table. He has made a way for us and he has prepared it for us. Why? Because we're invited to take part in what Christ has done, is still doing, and will continue to do. We are called to transcend and avoid the pain and hardship of this life, but to respond in the midst of it with hospitality and obedience. Like Abraham responded in a hospitable way, even in his pain in his age, in obedience and knowing that God is at work and will return our weeping into joy. I want to read the, the bridge to this song. And this song is just scripture. It's good, okay? I just want to, I want to pray this over you. And don't sing it right now. Just listen to the words and accept this as a good gift given to you. God, I pray over those of us in this room right now and those of us watching from home. I pray, Lord, that your favor will be upon your people, not just to those sitting in this room, but to their children and their grandchildren. 
Why? Because with Abraham, you knew it wasn't just a son, but a son to him was an extension of his lineage, was an extension of his life, meant that his family would be protected beyond him living here now. God, we pray that your favor would extend to our children and to the generations that follow. God, let it cover your children, your family. May your presence, God, and it shows up just as Genesis 26 says, your presence shows up in the most most ambiguous way sometimes. We don't quite understand it. We could be standing in a store, but we know in that moment, whoa, we're encountering something holy right now. May your favor, may your presence go before us, go behind us, go beside us, all around us, within us, because he is with us. You are with us, God. You saw Sarah's cynicism, but God, you saw her pain, and you cared for her, and you were true to her word. God, no matter what time, wake us up in the morning, in the evening, when we're going, when we're coming, when we're weeping and rejoicing, because you are with us, you are for us. So Lord, let it be. May it be. Amen, God. We submit this prayer to you. We submit this blessing to it because you are that type of God. Let's stand and sing this song. be upon you in a thousand generations.